first reading is from John 11, 1 to 27. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God, sorry, that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. The second reading is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring Jesus through, with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Everybody.
Well, we're closing in on the end of a series of sermons on the doctrines of applied redemption. Uh, In this series of sermons, we're focused on how God saves people. And we've not been talking, actually, we've not been talking about the gospel directly, how God saved the world, for he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him might not die, but have eternal life. No, we we actually haven't been talking about the gospel directly. Rather, we've been talking about how God applies that great work of redemption in history, how he continues to apply that to each and every one of us personally and individually. And in this sermon of series, in contrast to the great majority of the series of sermons that we do here at St. Barnabas, This has been doctrinal rather than biblical. Rather than looking at a passage of Scripture and considering its meaning, we've been examining doctrines, theories, if you like, uh, that seek to explain a wide range of observations, ideas that hopefully bring coherence to all of the different things that might be said, that we might find in Scripture on this topic or on that topic. So today we look at a doctrine of death. We find death difficult to talk about, don't we? I I dislike the word. Um, Perhaps you do too. Uh, Death, uh, the idea in the abstract or the reality when faced in the flesh, makes us all uncomfortable from mild anxiety through to agony. Depending. Well, and there are any number of reasons why, might this, why this might, might be so. In the beginning, humanity was created so as to live in everlasting fellowship with God, always having free access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So in a real sense, we were not designed to have to deal with death. As it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has placed eternity in our hearts. Death in Scripture usually means just that. It means dying, the end of life. But actually, Scripture cannot be properly understood on this subject until it is realized that actually the true meaning of death is spiritual. Separation from God. Jesus, for example, you may have already noticed, Jesus seems uh, quite often to insist that some people who seem to be physically alive, actually he insists that in truth they're dead. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you come and follow me. And sometimes he insists that people who actually are physically dead, he insists they're alive. She's not dead, she's asleep. These things are undoubtedly true. But they're hard for us to understand until we agree with the Bible that the spiritual truth is always more real and more important than the material reality that points to it. 
Indeed, the importance of, of physical truth is only ever that it points to some spiritual reality. So then, insofar as humanity sinned and is sinful, right from the beginning, we've, we've had to deal with physical death, dying, and spiritual death, separation from God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. That is not quite the same thing as saying that the punishment for sin is death, although to be sure the punishment for sin in the Old Testament is always ultimately death. But what Paul is referring to is the fact that death is what sin earns. It, it's what it gives birth to. It's, it's what it brings forth. Because sin is a rejection of God. And God is the source of life. To reject God is to reject life and to choose death. But in his very great mercy and compassion, God the Father sent his Son, Jesus of Nazareth, in order to save us from this. Again, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. He, uh, Jesus, he, he took the punishment on himself, the penalty we deserved, he took it upon himself at the cross. He was crucified for our redemption and raised for our justification. By his blood we are forgiven. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life within us. But given that these things are true, given that Jesus died to save us from death, why, I guess is the first thing to be explained, why then do we still have to die at all? Well, this question deserves a fuller treatment than I can give it now, but as we've already seen in this series of sermons, one of the privileges that we have as Christians is to share in the sufferings of Christ, his ongoing redemptive work in this world. And it is to the glory of God that each follower, each follower of Christ retells the story of Christ in his or her life. And this means for all of us, trusting God even unto death. And it means for all of us that our deaths actually play some kind of redemptive role in the world. And it also means for some of us that our deaths might imitate Christ's death insofar as we die as a direct result of our obedience to God, our refusal to compromise. Whether we live or die, death is fundamental to discipleship. Jesus' word to all of us is, follow me. Well, in his plan for saving the world, God the Father chose to place an interval of time, indeed an age, 
between the coronation of Jesus as king of heaven and earth in heaven and his coronation as king of heaven and earth in Jerusalem. That's yet to, to happen. We await his coming again. So in order of priority then, we might next ask, what happens when we die? Some texts in the New Testament speak of us lying in the grave until the return of Christ. Then at the resurrection, we'll rise to live. This is what Paul uh, is explaining in uh, the First Thessalonians passage that Steph just read to us just then. Paul says that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, those Christians still alive at that time will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. Now, the New Testament frequently uses, frequently uses the word sleep as a euphemism for death, a, a metaphorical expression referring to the fact that like sleep, death is temporary. A resurrection is coming. But as far as 1 Thessalonians is concerned, dead Christians are dead, sleeping metaphorically till the return of Christ. But other texts tell us that when we die, we go immediately to be with the Lord Jesus. Je Jesus himself teaches, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And then there's Jesus' words to Martha, which which uh, we've already heard this morning, likewise also teach that those believers who die physically never die spiritually because death will not separate them from him. To die in Christ is not to die, but rather to go straight to be with the Lord. In the real sense, then, believers in Jesus do not ever know or experience True death, which is separation from God. And, of course, Jesus says, you may remember, Jesus says to the man hanging on the cross next to him at his crucifixion, he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And Paul, in contemplating his own death, he rejoices in two thoughts. He rejoices in the thought that whether he lives or dies, he will be able to give glory to Christ. But, and this is of immediate relevance to our discussion here, he also rejoices in the truth that to die is to be with Jesus. He writes, to me, 
to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So I guess our doctrinal work this morning is this, to figure out how both of those truths can be true simultaneously. How can dead Christians be dead, awaiting the resurrection, and alive with Jesus at the same time. And what do we say pastorally? What do we say to those who grieve the loss of a dearly beloved Christian brother or sister? How do we answer the child who asks, where is grandma now? Is she with Jesus or feeding worms? Is grandpa there too? So when it comes to reconciling the two truths, that dead Christians are dead, awaiting the resurrection, and that dead Christians are alive, now with Jesus in heaven, the New Testament doesn't seem to answer the question directly, or actually to be terribly concerned with answering precisely this question at all. The traditional answer is this. At death, our souls, or spirits, go to be with Jesus immediately. But our physical bodies will not be raised from the dead until the return of the king. Uh, Such a view sees death in the age in which we live, sees death in this age, in answer really to be an answer to a question posed in the book of Ecclesiastes as a reversal of the description of our creation in Genesis chapter 2. In that chapter, God took dust and made an Adam, breathing his breath or spirit into him. At death, the body goes down into the earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But the spirit of the person flies upward unto God. Certainly at the moment of his death, Stephen the first martyr, prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And perhaps, perhaps this is also what Paul has in mind when he writes in Second Thessalonians, for we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And from his vision of heaven, uh, John writes from the island of Patmos telling us in his vision, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, 
until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So, so, so that's, that's the conventional answer. Spirits to heaven, body to the ground, reunited at resurrection. There are some difficulties with this answer. Soul goes to heaven awaiting reunion with the body at the resurrection. One of the difficulties is that we have very little idea as to what this so-called intermediate state or perhaps disembodied state, disembodied existence, actually is. What does the Bible have in mind? There are very good questions um, surrounding this because the Bible usually sees human beings as unitary wholes, not something that you can meaningfully divide up. When the Bible talks about soul, it usually means all of me. With all your soul means with all your being. Heart and soul means all of me. Pour out your soul means tell of everything to the deepest and most intimate level. Bitterness of soul means all of me is sad. All of me. And when the New Testament talks about body, soul, and spirit, it is usually a poetical description of all of me rather than some anatomical breakdown. I'm rather attached to my body. Yes, that is a pun. Um, I'm rather attached to my body, so thinking about being separated from this body is not an easy thought. And in the past century or so, various Christians and Christian groups have rejected the traditional plan involving the so-called intermediate state. A common thought is called soul sleep. Body and soul, we are dead until the resurrection, but like sleep, when we awake, we won't have been aware of the passage of time so that from our perspective, we go instantly to be with Jesus at the moment of our death. I, I don't have a strong view on the matter, but I guess for me personally, I'll go with the traditional answer. And... Simplifying, yet telling the honest truth as I see it, I will say to that child at the funeral, yes, to be sure your grandma is with Jesus, whom she loves and whom loves her, who loves her. And yes, grandpa, who also loved Jesus, is, is, is with them both. Well, we'll look at this stuff more next week when we look at the doctrine of glorification. Um, and, and that's all about what happens at the resurrection. But maybe the next question we should ask is, how should I feel about my own death? Well, following directly from what I've just said, we, we know that at the moment of death, We'll be with our Lord, never again to know pain or suffering or sickness, never again to experience the brokenness of this world, and never again to have to worry about death. 
and also at that moment to be perfected in our faith. To be free from temptation, to see straight through sin. In heaven, there's no chance of a fall. Heaven will be an experience of fulfillment, wholeness and healthiness in every possible way. Righteousness in all relationships, knowing and being known, valuing others and being valued, fitting in and who we are making sense. An ever-increasing journey of knowing more fully the identity and character of God and in that knowing ourselves and each other more and more and more as well. For us, the judgment of God, that judgment that each of us still faces, for us it is nothing to fear, for we, we know we won't be shamed, for Jesus took our shame upon himself at the cross. So there's no fear of, of shame. We know that we're forgiven. Indeed, we look forward to it as a time of reward. And a time when that investment that, that we can be building right now, if we're careful, is returned. A time of free inheritance. These thoughts can and do fill us with joy and peace, and they are a very great comfort and consolation in times of trouble. Nevertheless, it is not right to revel in the thought of death, nor, indeed, to desire its hastening. Jesus was filled with very great anguish the night before his death. It is natural to feel terrified at the prospect of dying. It isn't honoring to God to deny that God-given instinct. In the New Testament, the apostles show us that being saved often means, for them, being saved from being killed or murdered. They're very grateful not to have been killed or murdered. They're not disappointed. They're not queuing up for martyrdom, although both Peter and Paul know that that is eventually where they'll go to the praise and glory of God. So then, the next question, how should we feel about the deaths of others? You may have noticed how in our reading this morning from First, First Thessalonians, Paul teaches the Christians in that city that they do not have to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That's not to suggest that they shouldn't grieve at all. Indeed, there will always be grief. And grief is always appropriate. As David shows us, we weep even when our enemies die. And Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, fully aware that he was about to raise him from the dead. And when Stephen in the book of Acts was martyred, godly people buried him and wept loudly for him in deep grief. Even though knowing he was with the Lord Jesus, death continues to be painful, unnatural, and at times wretchedly, desperately painful. It would not honor God to pretend otherwise. The point 
that Paul is making is not that we shouldn't grieve at all, but that in our distress, even in our very great distress at times, we're, we're not in despair. If we know, as Stephen's friends did, that our beloved is with the Lord. So then, what about the death of non-Christians? Although I believe that the souls of Christians go immediately to be with the Lord at the very moment of their death, I am not sure what happens to the souls of non-Christians. There are lots of different views. But I am sure that Scripture is quite plain about the following. When Jesus returns, every human being who has ever lived will stand before him in judgment, for judgment. And the righteous will enter into an inheritance prepared for them since before the creation of the world, and the wicked will go away into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The plain meaning of righteous in the Bible is those who are right with God, who have been justified by God through faith in his Son. They are forgiven. The plain meaning of wicked in the Bible is everybody else. This is not the same thing precisely as saying that Christians go to heaven, everlasting life and eternal pleasures at God, God's right hand, and non-Christians go to hell, an everlasting, never-ending, conscious torture and torment, each moment worse than the one before a never-ending descent into anger, blame, physical pain, emotional angst, falling apart, loss of identity, misunderstanding and rejection, accusation and self-defense, anxiety, hatred and attack, loneliness and being alone. In hell, there is no chance of redemption. It is not precisely the same. It is not precisely correct to say that Christians go to heaven and non-Christians go to hell, but that is essentially correct as a summary statement. If we were wishing to be more precise or more accurate, we would put it this way, Jesus will save whomever he wants to save. And if you want to be saved, you must deal directly with him in this life. And all those who repent in this life, who run to him for refuge, find it, for he promises to turn no one away. Given that this is so, when someone we, who we know dies, someone who we know rejected the Christian gospel, what do we do? Well, although we know the destiny of the wicked, it is ultimately not up to us to judge who the wicked and who the righteous are. That's Jesus' job, as I've just said. It is possible that, like the man on the cross next to Jesus, people make a plea for grace at the last possible moment. We also affirm to people that God is gracious, kind, and just. 
That doesn't mean that there's any kind of second chance available for them after death. We know that there isn't for those who are stubbornly unrepentant. But it does mean that as God's children, we know that we can trust God with every eternal outcome that it will glorify him. Thoughts of judgment, especially God's judgment upon the wicked, his judgment of everlasting punishment, such thoughts quickly bring to mind in all of us surfacing questions about whether, whether or not that's fair. Is it fair and just that somebody might suffer forever? I mean, what kind of offense could justify that? Let the punishment fit the crime. How can that be fair? Is it fair when in this world so many never even get to hear the name of Jesus at all or any reasonable chance of hearing the gospel? Is that fair? Is it fair that only some are saved? Well, for all of us, such questions arise actually because of our sinful inability to take seriously the seriousness of sin, which turns us all away from God, makes God our enemy in our own minds. We remove from our own hearts the possibility of being saved, of wanting to be saved. So then, actually, the truth is that it is not fair when anyone hears the gospel. That's not fair. It is not fair when anyone is forgiven. That's not fair. It is not fair that anyone is saved. That's not fair. In the words of Gordon Fee, if God was fair, we wouldn't stand a lick of a chance. Actually, when Gordon Fee Fee says it, the windows at the back of the auditorium shake. What's not fair is that anyone goes to heaven to live and enjoy God forever. That's not fair when you consider how completely unworthy and undeserving all of us are. I uh, once baptized uh, a 10-year-old boy um, I told him in advance when we were preparing, I said, there'll be an opportunity for you to say a few words if you'd like to on, on, on why you're choosing to be baptized. And uh, when we got to that point in the baptismal service, I said, would you like to say a few words as to why you're choosing to be baptized? And he said, yes, because I love Jesus and because I don't want to go to hell. That's very clear thinking indeed. Remarkable. There are many other important things that should be discussed if we're going to present a comprehensive doctrine of death, including we should talk about purgatory, something that we can be sure is not true, and we should also talk about why we don't either pray to or for the dearly departed. But in closing... 
I'd like to point out that this is not the last sermon in this series of sermons, and that's because death is not the end. We've got two more sermons to go. But the closing thought for us today perhaps should come from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, wherein the author writes, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In breaking the power of death through his own death, Jesus has freed us from a very great slavery indeed. If death ruled, then ultimately nothing would matter. Everything would be meaningless. But because we know that death is not the end, that its power is broken, and that it will soon be gone forever, we can have very great courage to live and to live well with death, a part of life, not the end of life. Glory to God in the highest, now and always, here and everywhere. Amen.